This is a CBC podcast. It is a busy place. Wow, look at all these baskets. We're behind the counter at Ottawa's Vanier Pharmacy. Co-owner Navdeep Singh is showing us some medications that might be covered by a national pharmacare program. So the most popular birth control would be Alicinia or Alas. Diabetic medications, the most common would be metformin or Genumet. They're medicines not everyone can afford. It does happen more frequently than I like to think about. Um, you know, if we dispensed a month supply or three months supply and they're filling it five months or two months late, so you know that they're taking every second day to try to stretch it out. Still, this pharmacist isn't convinced that a new national program is the answer. I like the idea in principle, and again, the conversations that we do have with people who can't afford are definitely tough conversations, but my thinking is who's going to pay for it? I'm Catherine Cullen. This week on The House, the costs and benefits of pharmacare as the picture of what it might actually look like comes into focus. And the cost of NATO with Defence Minister Bill Blair. What does he say to Trump's threats to abandon countries that aren't meeting spending targets, which, yes, includes Canada? Also, ArriveCan, why the pandemic app went so over budget and whether the Liberals are now going to pay the price. Let's get started with Canada's Defence Minister on the challenges of Donald Trump and the apparent death of Putin's strongest critic. The House is now in session. I thought about it quite a while. I thought, should I stand here before you or should I go back to my children? And then I thought, what would have Alexei done in my place? And I'm sure that he would have been standing here on this stage. And I would like to call upon all the international community, all the people in the world. We should come together and we should fight against this evil. That's Yulia Navalnya speaking publicly just a few hours after reports of her husband's death emerged. Russian authorities say opposition leader Alexei Navalny died in prison when he lost consciousness after a walk. Navalny's wife told leaders assembled at the Munich Security Conference that if the reports are true, the world must unite and punish the Russian regime. One of the people at that conference is Canada's Defence Minister, Bill Blair. I spoke with him Friday about Navalny's death and the broader security challenges posed by Russia. Minister Blair, welcome back to the House. Thank you very much. I want to start with the reported death of Alexei Navalny. You were at this massive international conference in Munich. Describe to me what it was like when this news broke. When she spoke at this conference, I can tell you it was it was highly emotional for the participants. Um, it really placed an extraordinary exclamation mark on the work that is being done here. Um, I think it brought a, a sense of uh, enormous urgency, you know, and obviously deep sympathy for for Ms. Navalny and her her loss. But I think it's important that we'll await, as she is, uh, you know, the, the more information about the cause of death. But it really does highlight, I think, the oppressive nature of the regime. You know, that her, her husband was in prison, and I think that his imprisonment is, is also indicative of the values of, of that oppressive regime and why leaders from around the world have gathered here to unite in, in an effective response. You talk about awaiting the cause of death. Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, wrote on social media, Putin murdered Navalny as surely as if he'd strangled him with his bare hands. Do you agree? 
Well, you, you know, and I, I understand the, the passion behind those words. And Navalny was in prison, and I've, I've absolutely no doubt that his imprisonment and, and his treatment under the Putin regime contributed to his death. Again, we, we await evidence of the actual cause of death, but certainly we can see that his imprisonment contributed significantly to that. He was a young, relatively young and vital man. But at the same time, I, I think it really does galvanize international support for responding appropriately to, to that oppressive regime and making sure that we unite together and do the, the things that are necessary. And I know it has spurred additional conversations around sanctions, additional supports for Ukraine, other interventions which we believe are important. I would very much like to ask you about next steps, but I just want some clarity here. Are you saying that regardless of the what we learn about the cause of death, that there is a moral responsibility that Putin holds here? I believe so. He clearly, Mr. Navalny, was unjustly imprisoned. I have no doubt that the imprisonment and the conditions that he endured there undoubtedly contributed to his, his death. And, and, and I think there is a responsibility and an accountability that has to exist there. So you talked about other ways in which the world might respond to Russia. Yulia Navalny asked the people at the conference that you're attending to unite and help punish the Russian regime. What kinds of new actions might Canada take? Well, I, I can tell you. Canada has actually been very rigorously involved. You know that there are a number of sanctions that our country has has brought forward. Our Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, has worked very collaboratively with many of our like-minded international partners um, in coordinating an appropriate response. Additionally, I just came from two days of the NATO meetings, and we met as as the Ukraine Defense Contact Group I can tell you there's a remarkable unity and conviction of purpose that, that we need to do everything that is necessary to support Ukraine in, in its response and, and to end the, the, the illegal invasion and occupation of, of parts of their country. And all of us were united in, in that support. Rustam Umarov, the defense minister, appeared and spoke. We got, we got battle updates. But the unity of NATO, the unity of all our international partners was very clearly on display to me. And, and we are all resolved to do what is necessary. I think we recognize that Putin's oppressive and interventionist um, activities as an existential threat to the world peace order, to the international rules, th- this notion that might does not make right. And it's, it's important for all of us to stand up to it. I just want to be crystal clear about this last point. If Putin is determined to be responsible by Canada and its allies, Canada and the Western world will take some kind of action in response to Alexei Navalny's death. Well, I, I would say we are taking action and we're working very collaboratively with all of our international partners. It's why we're here in Munich. It's why I attended those NATO meetings. I think the strength of, of the West's response to Mr. Putin is our unity and the, and the fact that we work together. Individual countries can, can do certain things, but when we work in concert, when we work in, in a highly coordinated way, that's when, when our sanctions are most effective, our supports for Ukraine are most effective, and all of the responses that, that we bring forward. There is, I think, a, a great unity of purpose in, in, in understanding that we need to, to stand up to this threat. Uh, because it, it it doesn't just threaten Ukraine, it doesn't just threaten individuals like Mr. Navalny, but it affects world peace. And we need to stand together in strength in response to it. On that very point, last weekend, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump said he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell it wants to NATO members who don't hit spending targets. Do you worry that the U.S. would not defend us if we were attacked? No, you know, I, I, I first of all, I've worked very closely with our American allies for decades. And, and certainly since i become the defense minister, I have been always reassured and impressed with their resolve to work collaboratively in NATO, in NORAD with us, 
there have always been an outstanding partner. I think perhaps when Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine, I think one of his part of his intention was to undermine the unity of NATO, and he's had exactly the opposite effect. And in fact, in the meetings that I've attended with them, every time I've attended, I've been impressed by that unity of purpose and, and the resolve that every single member has. We, we all recognize the importance of increasing our defense spending to be more collaborative and work together to build up our capabilities in order to, to maintain... So, so, Minister, you don't you don't believe what Donald Trump is saying, Minister? No, no actually, what I think is, is, is that if Mr. Trump, you know, his experience with NATO um, was prior to the invasion of Ukraine. And I think if Mr. Trump had the opportunity to see what I have seen which is the incredible resolve, the strength of, and unity of purpose um, among all NATO members, including, of course, the United States, to stand united together to do what is required to maintain world peace and uphold the rules-based order. And if, if Mr. Trump had an opportunity to see the resolve of all NATO members to significantly, not only to increase their, their NATO spending, but to do it in a way which was coordinated and collaborative and, and working together, I think Mr. Mr. So, Trump so you- might have a different opinion of NATO. You believe Donald Trump can be converted then in the face of what he just, you know, has said last weekend, since then, uh, his skepticism about NATO, his uh, unwillingness to criticize Russia, you believe his mind can be changed? Well, I, I, skepticism about others' intention, I think, needs to be answered positively. And, and, and I think NATO and, and all its NATO members, including Canada, have the ability to, to present a united front in response to to Russian interventionism and illegal in- invasion of Ukraine. You know, we have stood together and I've witnessed a renewed and, and newly vigorous uh, NATO response. I think there's been extraordinary leadership and, and a great deal of that leadership has been brought by the United States. The, the United, Ukraine Defense Contact Group, which we, we meet every two months, is led by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin from the United States. The United States has been one of the most extraordinary uh, leaders in the support of, of Ukraine, and they've done some, some extraordinary work in bringing uh, all of the, the uh, our allies in, in NATO and across Europe and, and elsewhere together in that support. And so I think if Mr. Trump had a, perhaps a better understanding of the work that has taken place over the last two years, he'd have a different impression of NATO's commitment. Briefly, Minister, before I let you go, uh, when it does come to the spending targets, it would require an additional $18 billion a year for Canada to meet the NATO targets. Given the budgetary constraints that your government is talking about, is there any world where you are going to ask for an additional $18 billion a year for Canada's military? What I've been able to do is I've gone to NATO and and I've been able to demonstrate to them, first of all, that Canada's defense spending is in a very positive upward trajectory, that we've actually are increasing our defense spending by over 70 percent through 2026, that we've made some very significant investments in NORAD modernization, in in our national shipbuilding strategy, in the acquisition of fighter jets and multi-mission aircraft. We're going to be delivering, you know, 16 new surface combatant ships through, through those strategies. But I've I've also acknowledged we have more to do, and we're going to do more. And to be clear, Catherine, we're going to do it in a responsible way. I've learned in in this job, it it actually takes time to make sure that we make smart purchases that that produce real public value for the investment that Canada makes in its defense dollars. But I've been able to demonstrate a, a commitment to our allies that we are on a positive trajectory. We recognize the importance of increasing defense spending. We'll go as quickly as we are able, but I think everybody is facing the same challenges, and we are all working together to meet those challenges. Minister, thank you for making time for us on what is clearly a busy day. I appreciate it. Thank you, Gavin. Defense Minister Bill Blair.
So this one there is a generic for, it's called Genimet. And this, even for the generic, it ranges around $2 a pill. And the brand name was roughly $3 a pill. Without insurance, the cost of diabetes medication can add up quickly. Navdeep Singh knows he's the co-owner of Vanier Pharmacy in Ottawa, and he says he regularly talks to customers struggling to afford all types of prescriptions. In our community here, it's people are, are fairly low income or on a very tight or fixed income, and so the conversation is often, if it's not covered, I'll not take it. Or can you ask the doctor to switch to something else that is covered? And that's a question of, is it less effective? Is it as good for the patient? Those are tough conversations to have. The cost of diabetes medication and birth control might be covered under a national pharmacare plan, according to recent reporting, including by CBC News. But we don't know how much further a proposed plan might go. The NDP and the Liberals are in intense negotiations before a March 1st deadline because Pharmacare is a key plank of the deal to prop up the government. Both sides are optimistic. But at his pharmacy, Navdeep Singh has seen other plans to lower drug prices cause unintended problems, like forcing some drug suppliers out of the market. He wonders if that could happen again here. He points to what he saw a few years ago with a national initiative to reduce the price of dozens of the most commonly prescribed drugs. So it really brought prices down, sometimes up to 55% down, which is great for a cost saving initially. But ultimately what ended up happening is you went from six generic companies or more generic companies making the same molecule to one or two. And so the number of medications going on back order skyrocketed. And so just to give you an idea right now, we have back order, back order, back order, back order, back order, back order, back order. To help us understand what this new Pharmacare deal could actually mean for the lives of Canadians, Marc-André Gagnon is an associate professor of social and health policy at Carleton University. Welcome to the house. Thank you. So the headlines are focused on coverage for two types of drugs, contraceptives and diabetes. Why do you think they're talking about those two? First, it's a bit of a disappointment that we're only talking about these two, because what was in the pipeline, at least since 2019, was the establishment of a universal coverage of a basket for essential medicines for all Canadians. Now, it seems that now the Liberals are going against this commitment, are reluctant to go forward with uh, this type of coverage for a basket of essential medicines. And the NDP is trying to well, if we cannot have a full basket of essential medicines, let's have maybe one or two types of drugs that we will put in there, but in a way that we create a system that provides universal coverage for all Canadians. So diabetes, we must understand, a very important issue. We had studies some years ago uh, showing that just in Ontario, if you look at what we call cost-related non-adherence, so basically people not following their treatment because of financial reasons, basically you ended up with several hundred people dying every year for not being able to take their medication on diabetes. Wow, presumably be because they couldn't afford it in, in many of those cases. Yeah, exactly. But what, the thing is, both for contraception and, and diabetes drug, I, I think the NDP wants to, just if we have only two types of treatment that we can cover on a universal basis, let's make sure it's products that people know about. Everybody's kind of acquainted to these drugs uh, one way or the other. So for them, it, I, I think that there's an issue of making a political mark uh, by choosing this type of treatment. Do you think it's a political statement in particular to focus on birth control, which which has been a 
quite a political topic at times. For sure. But at the same time, the idea is to set a system that provides universal coverage for all Canadians. We need to understand right now, drug coverage in Canada is a patchwork. We have 100 different public drug plans in Canada. We have more than 100,000 different private drug plans. And a lot of people are still failing through the cracks. There was a survey yesterday showing that 22% of Canadians are still skipping doses or not filling prescriptions because of financial reasons. Every country with Medicare includes prescription drugs, and Canada is the only country with Medicare without including prescription drugs, as if prescription drugs were not an essential healthcare service. And that's a big issue because we have an inefficient, wasteful patchwork. We end up paying way more other per capita in terms of prescription drugs as compared to other countries. But at the same time, we have much worse access than what we have in other countries. You talk about this in terms of patches. Um, You know, we've been focusing on these two types of drugs. I really wanted to understand, based on the news coverage, is it really only these two types or are these two prime examples and there's still a really big basket of medications that might be covered? And so, I, you know, I called around to some folks on Parliament Hill and basically what I was told is the negotiations are still happening. We, we just can't say yet. Given that you obviously believe in this kind of program, how much optimism do you have that the basket might ultimately be quite large? I think that's the point by my universal coverage of just two treatments. Basically, that creates a mini basket, basically, not for all essential medicines, but for some medicines. But at least we have this universally covered basket. And then later on, we might be able to add up uh, different drugs in this in, in order to have a more comprehensive coverage in the long run. So I think that's the long-term strategy behind this idea of covering just two treatments, which is not a bad strategy. But the thing is, since the 1960s, you look at every inquiry, commission, any study looking at drug coverage issues in Canada, and everybody will tell you, well, the problem is that we have this current patchwork, a universal drug plan. When it comes to health insurance in general, to, to have a universal public drug plan covering the whole population is the best way to go. This is what provides best access, and this is what is costing less. So let me ask you this then, with the big asterisks that we just don't know what we're going to see in a couple of weeks in terms of a deal, if this basket, this mini basket, as you put it, only has two or three or four types of conditions covered, would you call that universal pharmacare? Uh, No, no. The universal pharmacare basically requires a comprehensive coverage for a a list of all cost-effective drugs, all the drugs necessary for the population, basically. And as long as we're not there, there's still uh, some road to go, basically. So the the government's pushback, I guess, in terms of all these negotiations has been about money to some extent, right? They're talking about the need to be fiscally prudent. Um, They are trying not to make their budget grow more and more than it already has. And and I appreciate you've talked about the cost savings that could come through a program like this. But what would you say to folks who say, listen, there's a lot of government spending already. We can't afford this. We need to understand right now, the current drug coverage system is not sustainable. There's growing costs everywhere. Reforms will be happening. On one side, basically, with universal pharmacare, what we're talking about is that we provide better access for everybody 
And at the same time, we achieve savings. Yes, we might be paying more taxes, but those who are saying we need to reduce taxes, basically what they are saying is we need to increase the disposable income for Canadian households. Now we're paying for our drugs one way or the other, be it out of pocket, through private premiums, through taxes or social premiums. In the end, Canadian households will be paying less for their drugs than what they're doing right now. So in the end, Universal Pharmacare, the, the impact it will have will be the same thing as if you were reducing taxes for all Canadians. And this is something very important. Okay. We are going to have to leave the conversation there. Marc-Andre Gagnon, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Marc-Andre Gagnon is a health policy professor at Carleton University. Coming up on the House podcast, Justin Trudeau has now appointed 81 senators, as many as his father. But in the decades since liberal senators were kicked out of caucus, how has the Red Chamber changed? I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to the program that helps you make sense of the political decisions that affect your life. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. The Arrive Can app is becoming a political problem. This week, the Auditor General's report found not only had the price ballooned to something like $60 million, the record-keeping was so bad, the Auditor General couldn't truly say how much was spent, though she says it's clear Canadians paid too much. Add to that questions from the RCMP and mounting confusion around the mountains of contracts the government has given to one tiny firm. No one has covered the Arrive Can file as closely as Bill Curry of The Globe and Mail. His reporting has prompted some of the calls for information that have brought us here today. Bill Curry, welcome to the House. Thanks, Catherine. So $60 million, I mean, in the big picture, that's a blip in terms of how much money the government spends in its budget. What makes this story important? I think it's a really interesting and concerning case study of the way government and spending is managed right now. And so this gives us a window into what's going on. And what the Auditor General found is very concerning. Like Some very basic things are not happening. Federal officials are paying invoices that they receive from contractors, and those invoices do not describe what they did for that money. So that's, you know, that was very concerning to the Auditor General, and I think to a lot of Canadians. And basic information in terms of how much things cost. You know, the Auditor General has a very well-financed team of auditors who spent months looking into this stuff, and she could not come up with a firm total price tag for a RiveCan. $59 million is a guess in her books, and the CBSA is still kind of disputing that. So, you know, that's pretty concerning that we cannot find out, even with the help of the Auditor General, how much something costs. One thing that really struck me covering this this week was when she said in French, like, this is a textbook example of what not to do, right? Raises a lot of questions. Uh, in terms of understanding what we learned this week, we know that this small Ottawa-based firm, GC Strategies, got about $20 million worth of contracts when it comes to Arrive Can. What was the most important thing that we learned about GC strategies or the most important questions raised perhaps through the Auditor General's report? I think it just, uh, it's very strange, this uh, scenario with these, these two gentlemen who work at GC Strategies. We've been writing about it for a while now. They kind of came out of the blue. This was not a company that was very well known. There'd been very little information about them. And the CBSA used them a lot. Uh, government departments, uh, you know, throughout Ottawa, use these two a lot. And it kind of creates a lot of opaqueness in terms of how money is spent. So essentially, they win contracts, but they don't do any IT work themselves at all. All they do is find other subcontractors. And 
the identity of those subcontractors is a secret. And sometimes they're not just individual IT people. Sometimes they're other major multinational companies. And so that kind of information is never revealed. And so that came out through the committee hearing. So I think it kind of just creates a lot of opaqueness about the way money is spent. And it also raises questions about the value because these two gentlemen say that they take a cut of between 15 and 30% of these contracts that are in the millions. So they've made a lot of money doing this. One thing I found striking was the question she raises about their involvement in actually setting the conditions for the contract they ultimately won. Can you just sum up what she said about that? Yeah, I think that's a pretty serious uh, finding. And the procurement ombudsman found the same thing in his report earlier, which is that GC Strategies was directly involved in helping craft the terms of a $25 million contract, which is very serious because... I guess the the only way you can be sure you're getting value for money with these kind of contracts is if there's actually competition. And if you know the, the weight is tipped in favor of one particular contractor, then you're not getting that value for money, and they're, they're able to kind of charge whatever they want. And so this has raised these questions about how many tens of millions of dollars, if not more, GC Strategies has gotten in government contracts over the years. There was a lot of to and fro about that this week. Can we confidently say what the number is? I think this is one of the findings that uh, perhaps could have some legs here, because one of the big problems is the government gives the appearance of transparency. They have this website that you can go to that says proactive disclosure. Here's all the contracts we give over $10,000, and it's full of garbage information. Yeah. Uh, Redundant, you, information missing. Yeah. Absolutely. The ombudsperson has said that you know the, the contract numbers are wrong, so you can't track things. There's mistakes, there's missing pieces, stuff appears uh, on repeat. So if you try to total that, you're going to run into problems because you're double counting. And so there is not a clear total for how much they've received in contracts or been awarded in contracts. You can use the public accounts to see how much they've actually been paid, which is about uh, $60 million. The RCMP also in the picture here. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah, so we reported that last year that the RCMP was looking into some allegations that uh, are not directly related to ArriveCAN, but they involve some contractors that worked on ArriveCAN. And so there's some links there and they've been poking around for a while now. And, and there's an interesting twist this week after the Auditor General's report came out, we went back to the RCMP and they said that uh, you know they're still doing their original investigation and they are also now reviewing what the Auditor General had to find and the Auditor General herself, which I thought was interesting, said that she had a, a meeting with the RCMP to discuss her findings. So we'll see where that goes. How's the government responding to all of this? Well, it's interesting because sometimes with Auditor General's reports, the, the government might be a bit on a defensive. They're just essentially saying that they agree this is uh, problematic. They'll, they'll reference, you know, that it's all occurred during the pandemic and wild things were happening all around, but they... They take the Auditor General's point that you can't use that as an excuse. You still need to document things. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens. They claim that they're, they're really fixing procurement. They've made a lot of announcements. I think it's going to lead to a lot of changes in the way the government spends money on contracts, but uh, the details are still to come. Thank you for your time and your reporting on this. Appreciate it. Thanks, Catherine. Bill Curry is the Globe and Mail's Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief. CBC News reached out to GC Strategies for comment. They have not responded. Justin Trudeau has appointed his 81st senator. That's the same number his father appointed in all his years as prime minister. But of course, Justin Trudeau's Senate appointments don't go by the name liberal. They're all considered some kind of independent. 
It's now been a decade since Trudeau kicked his senators out of the Liberal caucus. Conservatives still sit as a group and usually vote together, but Trudeau's appointees don't. So, have all these independent senators really changed the Senate? And when the government changes, will the new independent red chamber last? The House's Christian Paz Lang looks back at how the Senate has evolved, beginning with the fateful meeting that started it all. Mr. Trudeau was sitting there with all of the Liberal senators, but no MPs. And he then proceeded to say that a decision had been taken, that uh, Liberal senators would no longer be members of the National Caucus. Some were very angry. Some were very happy. And most of us, I think, were just in a state of shock because when we were appointed to the Senate, we were appointed as liberal senators. And we sat in a caucus every Wednesday morning with our colleagues from the House. So we knew what was happening in the House and we knew what was happening in the Senate. So it was really, really shocking, I guess, is the best way to describe our feelings that day. Former Liberal Senator Jane Cody remembers the day in 2014 when Trudeau expelled his Senate colleagues from caucus. James Cowan was the leader of the Liberals in the Senate until he wasn't. He says he still doesn't quite understand why the decision was made. I've seen Mr. Trudeau from time to time over the last 10 years, and he's never offered any explanation to me as to why he took the decision he did when he took it. So I don't know. We were not asked for our view. We, it, was, it was presented as a fait accompli. The explanation has something to do with the situation at the time. Mike Duffy, Pamela Wallen, Patrick Brazo have all been suspended without pay. Kiss goodbye to any hope that the Senate scandal would be last year's scandal. It's alive and kicking and inflicting political embarrassment. In light of the Senate expense scandal and a brewing Auditor General's investigation, there were calls for different kinds of reform, ranging from abolition to election. And then, from the leader of the third-place Liberals, came action. The 32 formerly Liberal Senators are now independent of the National Liberal Caucus. They are no longer part of our parliamentary team. There are no more Liberal Senators. The move and Trudeau's wider reform plan for an independent appointment process was not welcomed by then-Conservative Minister of Democratic Reform, Pierre Polyev. To have a, an unelected committee choose unelected senators is worse than the status quo. Jane Cordy is now the Senate's longest-serving member, and she heads up the Progressive Senators Group. But there's also the Canadian Senators Group, the Independent Senators Group, and a handful of non-affiliated members, plus a few government representatives. Cordy believes the Senate is much more independent now. It's nice not to have somebody saying, we'd like you all to vote this way or that way. Nobody says that to us. I don't, as a leader of the Progressive Senate Group, I never ask my colleagues in our group how they're going to vote. One of the things that has happened as a result of the changes is that the culture of the institution has changed. And I think it's in some ways it's a more constructive culture. That's Paul Thomas, a political scientist and expert on the Senate. He says the Red Chamber is a different place now. If you ask me on balance, I think the new Senate is better than the old Senate in terms of being a constructive presence 
in the national governing process. It's not just about getting bills through a minority House of Commons. It's also about ensuring that they can gain passage in the Senate. And it, it's not a bad thing in Canada to have to work harder to demonstrate that you have a consensus in favor of a major contentious piece of legislation. And there certainly have been some contentious pieces of legislation. Take C-234, a bill for carbon tax exemptions for farmers. Votes on a slew of amendments on the bill split the various caucuses, a sign that within the independent groups, there's plenty of room for disagreement. But not everyone thinks that the change has been good for the upper chamber. Conservative Senator Denise Batters was just a year into her term when Trudeau evicted senators from his small liberal caucus. I thought, wow, I mean, you just, you know, they only had about 30-some MPs at the time. And uh, to eliminate all these senators who have so much corporate memory, um, institutional knowledge, and just experience and longevity, I thought was very short-sighted move, and it turned out to be. Batters also argues these so-called independents are playing for the government's side without wearing their jerseys. I'm looking at who's getting appointed. First of all, we have people that they've set up these independent, so-called independent Senate advisory boards, but they're appointed basically by PMO. So you have a PMO appointing these boards who are then appointing senators. So it's all the same thing. I have frequently termed this Justin Trudeau's fake independent Senate because I really don't think that it has been in any way Senate reform. I think many Canadians, myself included, want to see real Senate reform, but this is not that. I think there's some misrepresentation and exaggeration involved with uh, the characterization that they're all liberal hacks. Where the Conservatives may be on stronger foundation is to say that the appointments typically are more liberal, small-l liberal in their thinking, that they're urban, they're professional, they're from uh, the distinguished backgrounds. So these people are highly accomplished in their private life. They have impressive credentials, but do they represent the full spectrum of public opinion within Canada? Uh, That's not the case. But regardless of who is getting appointed by Trudeau, former Liberal Senate leader James Cowan still believes the whole system worked better when the battle lines were clear. One government, one opposition. In a a Westminster-style parliament, it's based upon a government proposing legislation and an opposition testing that legislation. That's the the way it works. I found then, and I still feel today, that it's difficult to see how you can have a properly functioning Westminster-style parliamentary democracy if you have that model in one house and you have a totally different model in another, where you have everybody's an individual. His conservative opponent, Denise Batters, agrees that the Westminster model of government and opposition is the way to go. Some of the Trudeau-appointed senators have talked about, oh, this should be more like a think tank and, you know, a council of elders or something like that. I I don't think that that's appropriate. I think we are a parliamentary institution, just like the House of Commons. There are two chambers of parliament that need to pass legislation in Canada. One is the House of Commons, the other one is the Senate. I personally, I'm a big proponent of having a strong opposition in that chamber of parliament, just like is very important in a Westminster parliamentary system. And right now we have too many Trudeau appointed senators who are really trying to downgrade the role of the opposition. 
But is there a fine line between Westminster and the kind of divisions we see in Washington? Political science prof Paul Thomas says, it's okay if Senate reforms make the chamber a bit more free from the power of the PMO. We used to have too much concentration of power, and the Americans have too dispersed power and buck-passing and blaming. We're, we're not anywhere close to the Americans in terms of the difficulty of the national uh, parliamentary process, but we're, we're in a better place now than the, the both parts of parliament being taken for granted by more uh, dominating prime ministers. Ten years after the Liberals were kicked out of caucus, former Liberal, now independent Senator Jane Cordy wonders if the changes will even last if the Conservatives take power. What's going to happen? Is there going to be an opposition party in the Senate? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, you know, some people, not in our group, but some people in other groups are talking about maybe forming an opposition in the, in the Senate. I'm not sure. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. I guess we'll have to wait and see what the next 10 years bring, whether or not the government changes, whether or not we will be met with an influx of conservative senators. Will that change? It'll certainly change the makeup of it, but will that change the dynamic? We don't know. Will there be people in other groups who will decide that they're going to be going with the conservative group because they like to be part of a government caucus in the Senate? Those are all questions that... I can't answer. They're all scenarios that some of us wonder about what changes will come, and we will only know when it happens. So while Trudeau's 81 appointments have changed the Red Chamber, 10 years after the Senate Liberals were set free, there may still be more change on the horizon. For The House, I'm Christian Poslang. Now, what happens when politicians from different parties decide to work together? In June, a Conservative MP and a Liberal started up the All-Party Cancer Caucus to push for more attention and action on an issue that affects a lot of people. The Canadian Cancer Society says 1.5 million Canadians are living with or have survived cancer. Conservative Dan Albus and Liberal Peter Schiefke co-chair the All-Party Cancer Caucus. I sat down with them earlier this week. Thank you both for being here. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, fantastic. So, Dan, Canadians would probably like to see their politicians work together on a few more issues. Why cancer? Well, first of all, you know, I, I have a personal story. I have a loved one uh, that's going through cancer. I have a, a, another one in another province going through the same thing. And so when I talk to my loved one, I get asked questions and, and I start to see some of the commonalities between the two experiences. And I started asking questions. So I went to the Canadian Cancer Society trying to find some answers. And they've been incredibly supportive. And that's when uh, Peter and I started talking about these things because uh, uh, Peter's uh, a cancer survivor himself. And so this issue, as you said, is, it affects a lot of people. And right now, uh, the Canadian Cancer Society says that one in three Canadians does not have faith in the uh, level of cancer treatment and care in this country. And I think it's incumbent upon us as parliamentarians to, to do what it takes to help our constituents. And this is a, a, going to be a trying issue. And we just need to be part of the solution. Be part of the solution. Peter, what, what does that mean in terms of the goal of this grouping? 
It's interesting because Dan and I have had this discussion a couple of times. We, we've had lunch together. We've discussed this. We, like Dan said, we both have personal reasons for doing this. For me, it was a cancer diagnosis 12 years ago. Um, standing up in the house, talking about it, uh, sharing my story, making sure that other men who are diagnosed with testicular cancer kind of removed that uh, stigma attached to it. I wanted more people to talk about it. And then we realized that we've got this voice. We have this ability to talk more about this, make it an issue within Parliament, and find ways that the federal government can play a role, whether that's more publicity, whether that's, uh, you know, increasing the visibility about cancer in Canada, uh, whether that's looking at ways in which perhaps the federal government can play a role in facilitating uh, greater access to cancer treatments, etc. Or, and we had this discussion over lunch, are there barriers that are in place because of the federal government that mm. we can look at removing? And so we've had these incredible group of experts that we've met with over the last couple of months that have come in and shared amazing stories with us, spoken to us about ways that the federal government can take greater action, uh, and the discussion is ongoing. Dan, this is different than some issues for both of you because it's personal. What are you comfortable sharing about what's happening in your life right now with your loved ones? Well, I, I just know how much uncertainty there is. And look, I, I come from a province right now where a lot of people are, and there's news happens every day where you hear a story about someone who's died because they were waiting to, uh, for an effective referral to an oncologist. And I will say the people in BC Cancer Care are bending over backwards to try and make things work. But unfortunately, my province is sending people for treatment in Washington State in the United States. So it's not great. Uh, and uh, when you don't have answers to questions that a loved one has, uh, you just want to try and help. And one of the things that I think the greatest thing has been not only removing barriers between politicians from different parties to work together, um, but we're actually getting to talk with people that are in the system and, and fighting every day to make the system work. Tell me about a conversation you've had that's really stayed with you. Well, one oncologist told me that uh, the burnout is real. And so he's often left uh, with a case where he might have a very, um, uh, you know, a well-suited candidate uh, for a special access program application to Health Canada. But he has to literally weigh, it's going to take me four to five hours just to do the paperwork. Will that paperwork come back in a timely basis? He says it can t take up to a year or more before he hears back. A year and or then more. he's saying... Well, I could, by, by, I could be working those four or five hours and helping out another dozen patients. And so these are the things, that the calculations that people are making every day. Do I help more of my patients right now? Or do I reserve some time for that one patient that this may be their shot, their only shot? And Peter's right. There, there are a number of people that I've reached out in the uh, clinical trial space that have been calling for decades to have changes to the way we fund and the way we convey and do uh, health research. Health Canada needs to be part of the part of the solution. The Minister of Health, but also uh, the Canadian Institute for Health Research. So, like, there, there's there's a lot that can be done. And what I'm finding, our biggest role, at least for me, my biggest learning is breaking down those barriers, talking. And some of the people that came, we had a, a meeting where we had some oncology pharmacists mm -hmm. come in. And I asked them, what are you doing here today? And they just said, we, we're just amazed that politicians are talking about the issues that we deal with every day. And so I think we're on the right path. I think there's a lot more to be done. There's a lot more to learn. I would even add to that, that the flip side to that or the other side of that are the discussions where we're learning about success stories, which we don't hear enough about. Um, we had dinner uh, with one of the top oncologists in Canada, and he shared with me that because of the HPV vaccine mm. uh, that uh, young women in this country have been getting for quite some time now, we're on track to phase out uh, cervical cancer by 2040. I don't think Canadians know that. 
But that's phenomenal. That's that's a success story. We need more of those, and we need to figure out how we can get more of those and work together to do that. And, and Peter, your experience here is being informed by your own life experience dealing with cancer. What, what do you think that adds to the way you approach this issue? So for me, it's it's a positive story. Uh, when I was diagnosed, I remember um, the oncologist telling me I'd have to go through three or four months of intense chemo. And I thought it was the end of the world. Obviously, you never want to hear those words. But he had said, listen, there's been so many advancements over the last 25 years. This isn't the chemo of 25 years ago where it was everybody was given the same treatment. Now it's targeted. And that's because of research. That's because of literally decades of research and advancing our knowledge of cancer. And so he said, what we're going to give you is actually going to target the cancer. You're going to have less secondary effects. And every year that goes by that we do this, it's going to be even better for the next generation. That inspires me to do everything that I can to give the same benefits better treatments to the next generation as I got because of the work that was done by generations past. So that's really what I'm hoping to achieve here with Dan. Do you think that because of your own personal experience, like I really hear you putting the emphasis on hope. And I wonder if that's born of the the fact of having lived with this. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if I'm being honest, um, and I'm sure this is the, the same case for Dan and his loved ones, the thing that's always in my mind is that there's a good chance this is going to come back in my lifetime. They, they told me that because I, w- I had chemo so young that there's a good chance that I will develop, I hope not, but uh, I will develop blood cancer uh, in my lifetime. Usually, They said, you know, you, you, we should be looking at it in your 60s. I think about that and I, I have hope that through all of the work that we're doing here in Canada and our counterparts all around the world and our partners around the world, that we're going to f- make those advancements to be able to find a cure for this in the future. But I always have that in the back of my mind. And I think that's the case for every cancer survivor is, is it going to come back? And you just hope that it doesn't. And you hope that if it does, that you're going to have those treatments in place to be able to give you that time to spend with your loved ones. Dan, one of the things I wonder about, um, you know, you have this group of MPs that are coming together. I'm sure in both cases, you guys have looked across the aisle during question period. And maybe you've seen some of those folks, I don't know, heckling or, you know, really sort of getting into it. What happens when you all come into a room together to talk about an issue like this that is that is so personal, so grounded in human experience? Well, I, I find that members, and it's from all parties, when they come in, they literally are sitting and listening to the people that we bring in. Because, and most of them have told me that they've either had it themselves or they have a family connection. And I think that, you know, as we see a greater prevalence of cancer, our population's getting older, that means we're going to have more cancers. I think people are becoming more aware of this issue. And they're, they're not going to be content that someday down the road there could be a drug. We, we are seeing amazing drugs that are, that, are, that are coming to different markets. But they have the same questions I do. Why does it take so much longer for, for, for Canada to approve drugs and have them available through our public health care system? Uh, why are, are we so far behind on biomarkers that can help use precision medicine? Because oftentimes when you're given a standard of care where they say, we're putting you on this, um, they may have a particular biomarker that means that particular chemo treatment is not as effective. And they may not even know that. And so th- driving some innovation getting rid of some of the red tape, 
answering these questions. When these MPs come, I think they're all very positive and very productive. And look, question period will always be question period. People have to see a democracy happening. But I think that's where Peter and I and other members are coming together to say this is important and we're creating some space for it. We're not the health committee. We're not the finance committee. We're not the ministers of health. But we believe that in Canada, we can do better. Are there any challenges in the fact that you do come from different political positions and it's not clear that you necessarily, your parties necessarily land in quite the same place on health care? Have you seen that at all be something that needs to be addressed in some of these discussions or that's just all to the side? I don't think we've had any of those. I, th- mm-hmm. I think it's been, all the discussions we've had have been very productive. Um, I think we've kind of left politics at the door and we're in solution mode. And we've had these incredible people coming from all across the country to speak to us. And they don't want to hear us bickering. They don't want to hear us fighting. They want to hear that we're listening. They want to see that we're listening. And they want to see that we're taking that information to the appropriate ministers and sharing that information with them and pushing as hard as we can. I also will say personalities matter. Uh, Peter's easy to work with. Uh, we, there's a lot we agree on. And uh, when we reach out to other MPs from other parties, we're starting to see uh, where other parties are responding. And often it's because they have their own story. And so there's not re- we're not really having to, to set down standing orders uh, or ground <laughs> rules for how we work. Um, people are just getting right to it. It is a real pleasure to speak with both of you about this. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thanks. Liberal MP Peter Schiefke and Conservative MP Dan Albus. Before we go, we've got time to share some of your emails. Two weeks ago, our senior producer Jennifer Chevalier reported on the state of 24 Sussex Drive. The Prime Minister's official residence is now asbestos and rodent-free, but there is still a big question mark about what to do with the crumbling home. So Jennifer, your story got a lot of reaction. Yeah, did you see Jane Philpott's tweet? Uh, I did, in fact. The former health minister tweeted out, here's an idea, $37 million for a renovation, and we have about 40 million Canadians. We could do it if we each pitched in a buck. Some of us could do $2 to cover those who can't. Anyone want to start a GoFundMe? Well, several people emailed us in with the exact same suggestion. Alan Aidsness in Renfrew, Ontario, said people like him would welcome the opportunity to feel good about being part of something worthwhile. Plus, Kathleen Brooks cheekily suggested that some of Canada's wealthiest citizens could chip in. She particularly wants to see Loblaws Galen Weston and Drake uh, chip in from their personal fortunes. We also had an email from Steve Anderson. He's a shop teacher in Victoria, B.C. He'd like to, quote, spark Canadian spirit by assembling a team to fix up the house for a small honorarium. Would that team be his high school students? Uh, Yes, in part. Um, But speaking of students, Alexander Reiford in Grand Métis, Quebec, said he thinks Canada's architecture schools should host a national competition to design a new or restored 24 Sussex as a teaching tool which, as a matter of fact, the architecture school at Carleton University here in Ottawa did a few years back. Did you get any feedback about people responding to the idea that there's no decision made about the Prime Minister's official residence? Or what Lothar Schindler called the mouse house. That's something he's (laughs) trying to make happen. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people just thought it was embarrassing. Uh, John Merzetti in Vancouver wrote, We risk becoming a laughingstock if word gets out around the world that we can't spend a few million dollars fixing up the home of our Prime Minister. But Harrison Ransbury in Tobermory, Ontario, was sceptical about the $37 million price tag that the NCC says is needed for renovations. He wrote, has anyone asked to see the quotes for this work? Seems a tad pricey. Even with incredible finishes, that's a lot per square foot. Um, And then someone uh, else emailed in, Leonora Barnes, suggested it should be rebuilt. She thinks it's a great opportunity to build a completely environmentally sustainable home with a smaller carbon footprint. Now, your report also mentioned security concerns. What did you hear about that? 
Charlene Terlevin wrote in about the big price tag, and uh, she reminds us of the time that Jean Chrétien was defended from an intruder with a knife at 24 Sussex by his wife, Aline. Uh, Charlene makes no comments about the security costs. She just commented, lovely woman. And finally, this is the last one, I promise. <laughs> we had a lovely email from Titch Duramsey. He wrote, I had the privilege of dining at 24 years ago as a former refugee from East Africa. We ate outside because the dining room wasn't fit, I was told. It was amazing anyway. Well, that's a nice story. Thank you so much for this, Jennifer. You're welcome. Oh, I'll just add that there's going to be a longer version of that documentary broadcast on CBC's Storylines next month. Find it on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.